This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Jenny. Hello. Hi. I, I apologize for all men. <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking about The Death of Grass by John Christopher, which is a 1956 post-apocalyptic science fiction novel. John Christopher, a.k.a. Samuel Ude, and apparently he, he wrote a bunch of novels under his, his real name that weren't science fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh. Americans might know this novel as No Blade of Grass. Right, and the reason for the name change was pretty weak, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. But uh, what it made me think of, if it was going to think of something else, was um, like an anti-pot novel or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh no, that would be horrific. <laughs> well, um, in the States, that... I don't know if they call it pot in the UK, but or grass in the UK, I should say. So, but no blade of grass makes it at least you know associate blades of grass. You don't usually say a blade of marijuana, right? Sure. So that that might have been the real reason. But I don't know how the kids talk today. I, I don't know either. I I like this book. What do you guys think? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it's not my idea of a good time. But <laughs> well, well done book. Very well, you- uh, succinct and well done. You just finished reading The Stand, didn't you, Tam? Yeah, well, the original version, not the twice as big newer oh, version. Oh, okay. But even but so, that, that, that's in the same genre, kind of, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and, and they do have committee meetings in that book. <laughs> but what I think is different about this book as opposed to most of the ones that I've read that you know are disaster stories, post-apocalyptic stories, is uh, the focus is different. Uh, it's on human psychology and and not on maybe in this in the stand it's an allegory you know it's all metaphor something <laughs> i'm not really sure that stephen king's big on metaphor but it's it's a it's a supernatural event there and in many cases it seems kind of like zombie apocalypse that's not really possible whereas this is, seems um you know it's a pretty good way to end the world <laughs> We're really dependent on grass. Well, and another big difference is Stephen King really makes you live through the disgusting part of things, mm. the dead bodies, the, the right. illness, the disease. And these people just kind of skate around it. They hear about it, but they're not really experiencing yeah. it for themselves. Except they do it, Jenny. They do it. They are well, the ones making those people dead. Yeah, but they're not yeah. seeing the, the mass right. famine and... You know, any atom bomb destruction or anything. I feel like it's almost like a play. Like, you just see, like, two or three people at a time just talking about what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it would make a good play now that I I mean, there's a lot of walking for uh, a play, but (laughs) it it would make a good uh, maybe live live TV movie or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, there is an audio drama, which I'm planning on listening to uh, later this week. Um, Five-part adaptation done in 2009 by the BBC. So I think that might be really... Excellent. It should give it enough length. It's it's a pretty short book, but um, it packs a lot of, uh, di- not just dialogue, Bunch. but a lot of stuff into it. It does. So, uh, Jenny, you said you had a lot to say. <laughs> you will have a lot to say. Is what oh, you well, I've just read a lot in this subgenre. I mean, it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. genres. Jenny's an expert in dystopia. I don't know that I'm an expert. I've just read a lot of it. So, I always put it in the perspective of all those things. I not really reading it, just kind of an isolated experience. Right. So, 
what's what what's comparable that you read to it? Well, it seems like a lot of these post-apocalyptic books have to have uh, a journey, and most of the time that kind of makes sense. You know, people are on the hunt for food, etc. But I guess I kind of question their um, intelligence in this one <laughs> because uh-huh. I think if it were me. Uh-huh. If it were me, and grass and grains were dying everywhere, I'm not sure I would risk my family's survival to go somewhere to live off of one more thing that was a plant. <laughs> well, what else are you going to live off of? <laughs> well, honey? I, I mean, mean not... they live on an island. There's a lot of sea, and I think I would decide to go get a houseboat or something and fish for a living because fish oh. don't need the grass. I don't think you can only live on fish, though. You you wouldn't get any vitamin C. I mean, you'd have to eat all the kelp and stuff, too, I guess. Oh, sure. Go down but to I, the beach. I, I guess Isn't if that I... What the, the Inuit in Alaska live on a diet like that? Yeah, they live completely on seal. Uh, not completely, but yeah. Uh, but also, um, in that case, they have been winnowed, you know, that the, the people are more uh, able to eat that diet. And if you just said, hey, I, I think I'm going to be an Eskimo or an Inuit, um, I think you might have uh, some deaths in the family just from the fact that you're switching switching diets extremely. But better fish that you can find than potatoes that you can't. <laughs> it's a it's a point, um, but I don't think he could. I don't think John Christopher could have made the, any of the points he wanted to make um, if he had done your your scheme. But I I agree that that actually makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Well, I think the whole problem with everything they do is that they're basing all their assumptions on the way the country ran before this happened. You know, that the government would give them the infrastructure to be able to even make a journey and that their family would value them above everything else. Those are well, the they, two. they do That's make the, it, though. Yeah, but both of those assumptions were wrong. <laughs> uh, well, um, it's it's not the... I don't... I think they, they, they were pretty smart about it, but uh, I don't... They're, the setup at the beginning, we've got a slow intro with um, the brother and the, the two brothers and the, the grandfather in the farm and how we're introduced to that and later on, you know, about how the river works and all that stuff. That is the setup for the premise of the book. You could probably tell, you know, somebody else's story uh, escaping London, going somewhere else. But the reason these people are around to tell their story is is because of their unique background. The, right. the main character's uh, brother is a farmer and he has got he lives in this very isolated valley that's got, you know, a very defensible exit. Well, and to be fair, he did invite them. Uh, uh, although but you can tell how by the way this book is going that something bad like their their hope is all pinned on getting to that farm and you can tell that something is not going to go right. Right. Once they get there, the way the whole book is going. Yes, well, and if you look oh, at a map of England, it's yeah. at the very northern part and so they had to journey through the entire country to get there when the coast was a lot closer. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a point. It's a point. Um, what do you think? Uh, what do you think is the point? Like, there was a point at, at which I'm reading this book. I thought, oh my, this is taking a turn uh, that I didn't expect. And I guess I should have expected it, but uh, there was a point at which I said, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Is it for you guys? Was it the same scene where they go to the the gunsmiths and they attack the guy? Did that did that surprise you? I, I found myself continually surprised by main character's actions. I just remember where they, they shot some mother's face off. 
Yeah, that's that, that's sort of the culmination of the of the. They're they're definitely going down that route. Yeah. Well, I think I understood the gunsmith because they needed weaponry, and that was clear. I think the moment that surprised me was when Roger killed his wife. Yeah. Well, Isn't that who I think it was Roger. Uh, what, no, uh, Perry. 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 Perry is the one who's good with the gun. Yeah, Roger's the he's the he's the guy in the government. Roger right, Buckley, yeah, the inside, he's the civil servant, and uh, so at the gunsmiths, right? He he says, I, I want this and I want that, and he says, Well, do you have your license? No, I don't. Um, we'll give it to us anyways. No, I won't. And then, pow! Right? Mm-hmm. They they try and take him out, um, and then when that doesn't work, they resort to uh, argument. <laughs> it's like, Why don't you come with us? Hmm, okay. <laughs> um, now Perry is uh sort of a catalyst i think for the for the main character mr Custance, right mr Custance. yeah but he becomes mr Custance. right he becomes a lord a feudal lord yeah so like that's where the new feudal lord title is going to come from is mr he just takes over or you know how we get czar and um and other uh titles is from caesar uh it's just oh yeah and uh, a Kaiser, right? The Kaiser of Germany, it also comes from Caesar. The thing is, is you've you've got sort of a warlord who becomes a traditional title. Um, it might be that you know it is 500 years down the road, the Potato Kingdom of Northern England, <laughs> that's that's run by uh, uh, a king called Mister. Yeah. So in that in that scene with the with the gunsmith, we see that Perry is is pretty quick he's he's clever uh, but he's also he's also ruthless in a way that that uh it seems like john Custance isn't and yet when it comes to making the decisions john Custance does make all the what i would say are evil decisions he kills people like they so they get robbed on that highway right mm-hmm. everything's taken from them except for a couple guns in Perry's backpack or whatever, and then they cleverly tied it up into a blanket. Right, and then they they go down the road and find a house. They go up to the house, and they shoot the owner of the house who doesn't want to give them any food. And then they shoot the 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 wife of the Mm. of the man, and then they and then they don't shoot the daughter, and they take her take her with it. So that she becomes Mrs. Perry. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's like this is not the viewpoint of our heroes. This is the viewpoint of our villains. And yet, right. where are the heroes, right? So, the only person I think I could be in this story is Spooks, that, that little, uh, the the kid who knows a little bit about, you know, isn't very good at anything. <laughs> Just happens to be the friend of, of one of the bad guys. Are you sure, though? I mean, if the world was falling apart and you had to protect your family, are you sure you couldn't become that person? I I'm pretty sure I would have been killed at the first the first. <laughs> but, That's convenient. Um, well, in this in this particular circumstance, uh, I think I, I would would have been killed just because I I'm much more hesitant to use violence than than. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty wimpy. I'd probably be mowed down pretty fast. <laughs> I'm certainly not Perry, and I I don't think I've got John Custance's. Uh, I like I I think it would be actually better for me to die than to to want to do all those horrible things that he's done. Right. Although John was kind of a normal guy in the beginning, and somehow he becomes... He seems, he seems normal. Right? I think that that's the, the thing, but uh, isn't the point that 
You think uh, his dark side was always there, like even before? It yeah, started? I think that's what John Christopher's argument is: is that uh, as soon as as soon as it becomes inconvenient, they throw all their morality out the window, right? They say, uh, "Oh yeah, well that's the old way. Uh, the old way is you give a nod and a wink when your wife is che- cheating on you, and in the new way you kill her because she uh, make, making." Uh, cut cold out of you or whatever. Well, and I think there's a good conversation near the end between John and his wife, Anne. Um, she was trying to blame Perry for how John changed. And he was just like, no, I mean, he did what needed to get done. And that's how I'm going to do things now. It's almost like he loves Perry. He's like a, a bromance with Perry. He he needs, he needs Perry. I think he sees him as like that catalyst that allows him to, I mean, it, it, Perry is really smart. Uh, when, in the, I think it's especially made clear in the movie version, and I know the movie version is really terrible, but um, the scene where uh, they are sitting on the side of the road waiting for more, more people with guns to come and ally themselves, right, so they can get get to the final destination there. When they kill the leader of the other group, Perry says, now, all of you come up to Mr. Custance and shake his hand and tell him your name and tell him, uh, your skills and tell them uh, what you did for a living and stuff like that, right? And each of the men comes up in turn, and, and at that point, Custance is like, "I'm I'm now the Lord. I'm the now the Baron over these people, and they all owe their allegiance to me." And I'm thinking, "Holy crap! That's actually exactly what what's going on." And Perry uh, has sort of aligned himself as the as the the man who can make that happen because he's the first so, officer yeah he's sort of no he's sort of like evilly insightful into what will motivate i think i mean actually in the in the audiobook i listened to he the narrator gives him like an evil kind of a voice like straight from the beginning so you, <laughs> you kind of expect yeah. these things are going to happen i guess, yeah i, I guess it why is. hello i think i will come along with you <laughs> it's not quite that extreme but he certainly um, he's he's he gets to the point and there isn't a lot of like I, I just like think if you compare this to um the walking dead you know the that tv show mm-hmm. you compare the two stories what you see is in the american story of the walking dead which is kind of similar you know they're running out of food they need to go out for food and come back and keep safe and all that stuff they will kill other human beings, and they do it. But there's always a provocation that makes it okay, right? That bad guy was threatening us, right? So I killed him. Whereas when you go up to somebody's house, knock on the door, and atta- attack and kill them, and while well, their you know, young daughter's upstairs crying and saying, where's my mother, where's my father? That's not your... There's no justification that allow you to fit that into your your moral schema, right? It doesn't fit anymore. They just completely sweep it out the window. And the wife is is always saying, "I can't live like this. I can't live like this. It'll be," he says, "it'll be different when we get there." But didn't that strike you as like the overriding theme? Because that's it was so obvious to me. <laughs> well, and I think that she she really does believe that it will get better now that they're there and they're safe in the end. But then remember the scene where he saves the gun mm-hmm. for is it, is it for Davy? Yeah. Is it the sun? Yeah. And isn't that kind of a sign of that it's gonna continue 
the way they've changed is going to continue. Yeah. And they're going to defend themselves and they're going to be violent and they're going to be controlling of their situation. And yeah, I mean, it, that ship sailed. <laughs> There's another uh, point I think was interesting that came up while I was uh, reading. The immediate plan of everybody is to continue farming. Like you said, Jenny, continue farming, even though we know that plants are, are not uh, not as reliable as they used to be. And if there is a crop failure with their their only crop, which is potatoes, they're going to have a serious um, problem on their hands. So in the history of human civilization, uh, farming turned out to be a massively beneficial thing, we think, right? We all, all allowed us to develop cities and allowed us to have markets and granaries and all the things that uh, keep us in food abundance uh, in times when when there should be a famine, right? If the land is in drought, we, we still have these backup resources because we have, um, we have a sedentary uh, farming lifestyle. But um, when a blight occurs, there's that, it's actually worse because population increase uh, caused by farming allow, allows you to grow your population in the, uh, in the good years also means that when there is a, a massive um, blight, then there's nowhere to run, and you can't go back. Once you start farming, it's like a trap. It's a one-way trap. You can't go back to hunting and gathering because there suddenly is no place to hunt or gather. There's not enough fields. There's not enough area, and it's full of people who are competitors. So it's like you put yourself into a prison where you can only you know, farm that one little area. Not to mention that the animals that you would hunt would need grass to eat. Exactly. Well, they're, in that case, yeah, it's, <laughs> they can't. They can't have any food. They have to kill all the animals too. So, it is. It is a. Um, it is a. It's a trap. That I don't. I don't see them actually getting out of it unless you know the grass comes back. Mm. And that I think that is actually the fundamental flaw in this. This novel is that. Typically, the way these things work is it doesn't kill every, you know, a, a virus doesn't kill every single member of a species. Um, it just kills 99% of them. And so it, it should, you know, rice crops should come back and, and such. Quinoa. Like. Quinoa, yeah, quinoa is a, uh, a grain, isn't it? They'd have to wait, get a, find a way to get it from South America to England, though. <laughs> <laughs> Talk like about pirates. <laughs> I, it, it's really good. I I don't know I don't know what it's made out of. Uh, it's oh yeah, it's a grain-like crop known for its edible seeds. Okay, so it's not exactly a. We could eat quinoa. I like quinoa salad. There you go. Six kind of just a, made quinoa. What brownies? I made quinoa granola. Granola. You could have yeah. coconut, coconut, uh, coconut flour and <laughs> quinoa, quinoa salad. Yeah, we could all just go paleo. No problem. No more wheat. Yeah, but uh, I bet there's a limited number of coconuts in the world, too. Yeah. Not that many in England, either, I think. What did you think about the prime minister's idea in this story oh. of, uh, you know, just dropping a few atom bombs to thin out the population? <laughs> I think that was plausible. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about, like, you know, all those other crops you thought you wanted to depend on, right? What does an atom bomb do to those crops? <laughs> uh, it's not as bad as you think. 
Um, uh, nuke, nukes don't don't they're not as devastating as we think they are, but they certainly devastating the people that they land on. I think I think that is sort of a meta version of what's going on in uh, or not a meta version. It's a it's a larger scale version of what's going on, Mr. Custance and the Perrys, right? Mm. <laughs> the two the two Perry wives. Um, also, he's a sixty year old man, and that woman he takes as his wife is a teenage girl. There's um. <laughs> There's no um, there's no mor- mor- moral problem with it after it happens because he has a gun, hmm. right? and th- there is a theory of a politics that all power comes from force, all political power comes is backed up has to be backed up by force. Um, but the committee that takes over after the prime minister, right? They are not going that. Way. They use force, but once they get there, they don't say. Please, uh, uh, no, they don't say you must still remain in the city. They say, please remain in the city. <laughs> and there's no backup to it, right? Right. It's already clear by then that they don't have any power. They just right. had the power to make to remove the prime minister, which might have been essential. But was he wrong? Was he wrong to try and nuke his own people? What do you think? Yes. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not even sure that would actually happen. I wonder how plausible that is. Well, it's it, it's a good question, but if if you had starvation on that massive a scale, mm-hmm. uh, think of you know, yeah, it'd be desperate times. It would be extremely desperate times, and you wouldn't. Can't, can't they make soil and green choice? <laughs> well, that's that's another way to go, right? But mm-hmm. I think in the in the case of soil and green, uh, aka uh, make room, make room, which is a uh, Harry Harrison novel. That, that is a slow apocalypse, right? So that that didn't happen, you know, one day everything stopped working. It's more like uh, we're we're having more and more difficulty collecting food. We're having more and more difficulty with this, and mm-hmm. you sort of see uh, that when a country has extreme pressure put upon it, it will make decisions that might be proved to be unpopular. China has a one-child policy that they strictly enforce. And that makes a lot of people unhappy. But if it prevents you from having too massive a population, then it seems that it will be not only accepted, but done, too. Yeah, I think that kind of apocalypse is more plausible, like a slow, a slowly happening apocalypse, as opposed to just something that happens overnight. Well, it, it it doesn't really happen overnight in this in the story, right? Um, it it's about a year, I think, between the the time it starts in China and the time it gets to the UK. But that's a good point. I mean, their awareness of the severity of the problem is is very low. <laughs> well, I mean, they're just kind of in this blissful that would never happen here. We're already prepared for this, and obviously not enough. <laughs> Uh, climate change, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. The government well, will fix it, no problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll or, leave or the government when it says I'll, that... We'll make an antivirus, virus, virus. Yeah, it, it's... The thing is, is lots of stuff happens in the world, and it's hard to know which ones are the ones are going to kill you, right? You, you look out and you read the news and you say, well, that's not good. But most of the time when you say that, nothing bad actually happens to you, Right. You read in the paper about some 
food being tainted, right? You don't think, oh, that's going to happen to me. I better stop eating food. Hmm. <laughs> you say um, something more along the lines of, oh, that's terrible. And uh, I guess I don't have any of that to worry about myself. That only happens to them over there. That's right. Well, and I thought it was ironic that um, they went with potatoes as the solution for this book, just considering that, you know, I, the English have, yeah, the potato famine so much in their recent history. That it, it's a good way to inform the, uh, you know, inform us, I think, if you're aware of the Irish potato famine, the fact that people were starving to death. It does tend to change things, right? It does. I don't, I don't know how popular potatoes are in Ireland anymore, but um, they, uh, they definitely got on ships, and, and when they didn't get on ships, they died. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a mid How did the potato famine happen? Was that a virus a, or something? A virus, yeah, a blight. Oh. Yeah. Um, the, the one that's mentioned in the audiobook, there's a, uh, an introduction, and it talks about how prescient this novel is there is an african uh grass virus called a rust that prevents the wheat i think it is to uh, from uh taking in energy hmm. it's sort of um prevents prevents chlorophyll production or something so um it, it is it going to kill us probably not but um it was interesting in the in the terrible movie version um it's mostly the problem with that movie is that it's it's really badly edited and really badly uh, acted in many cases, and it's badly um, cut, to, it's badly filmed. Uh, the script is good because it's almost an exact copy of the book, uh, and there's a couple of good scenes. But what's interesting is they changed it because it came out in 1970. It's not caused by a virus. It's caused by pollution, and it's like the Earth is collapsing. It's sort of, you know, in the 1970s, we get a lot of movies like Silent Running and Silent Green, you know, ones that are saying environmental apocalypse caused by pollution. In this case, um, I don't think I don't think pollution will cause the death of just grass. I think it just causes environmental problems, environmental disruption. But if we were putting this, rewriting this novel or making this into a movie today. My thinking is the change that would be made would be to go go back to it being a virus, but also add in the fact that we've got monocultures like never before, right? Monsanto makes right. M- makes the the grain that's going to kill us all, <laughs> the Terminator gene that kills uh, kills the uh, the wheat so that it can't reproduce itself. You have to keep buying it from Monsanto spreads uh, to other fields and causes people to not only uh, crop failure um, when they don't buy the branded Roundup, right? The, the, um, they, when they don't buy the... Uh, GMO? No, there's a uh, anti... Uh, you know, it's a, Roundup is a other insecticide, I guess. If you don't buy the associated um, chemicals to go with your your product, your wheat product, then your crop fails. But people who don't buy into it end up having to buy it anyways because you can't control the spread of of the of grass. <laughs> it it spreads into other people's fields and and so you add in the, the that second layer and then add in the third layer of it being a, you know, a intellectual property. 
it, it as a GMO, it is patentable. It is trademark, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's um it's like a, a third layer, you know, a problem. Yeah, that's more like a Palo Bajikalupi novel, like uh, the Wine yeah, Girl. Think, it's yeah, all, it's all about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of like that. Now that I think about, it. you've read that, right, Jenny? Mm-hmm. I haven't read it, but that's what I've heard. Yeah, it's more related to that stuff. I was just looking around um, just to see if there's famine currently going on, and there is. So it's not like this problem has been solved. It's just that it's not really a westernized problem right now, you know? True. So where is there famine currently? Somalia, Horn of Africa. It was really bad back in April, but they they were saying that if it got to the harvest in October, which is, of course, still to come, um, that maybe that would do it, but it's, you know, very much related to governance and weather. Like, there are things you can't control, just like in this book. <laughs> but uh, that's also the region where there is a, a, a grass virus. Yes. From Kenya up to the Horn, I think. I guess I just wanted to mention it because I felt like the problem of the book, or the people in the book, is that, I don't know, they for a long time they felt like it was just these other people. These other yeah. millions of people. There are actually some racist terms used here and there. I'd rather not repeat, but um, I don't even remember that. Yeah, and then it it happens here too. So it's it's a global thing. It's real. <laughs> the bees well, are dying. I I think maybe um, it having started in China in the case of um, of uh, the the book is is possibly related to the. You know the yellow peril idea, where the Chinese there's just too many of them, and so when they come to uh, some sort of disaster, it, you can sort of just discount them as a group because there's just teeming hordes. I, I think that was one of the words used. Teeming. This cities were teeming with people, right? Well, if you start talking about people as teeming, you're talking about like teeming with lice or teeming with ants. Or teeming with something that you need to get rid of. Right, it's a way to be dismissive. Indeed, but <laughs> the, the the this whole book is about, I think, about how you engage with other people who are not your immediately either your immediate family or even if they are, um, not in your group. And then the only advantage this small group has is that they have a day's extra notice, you know, to escape their own teeming hordes in their own country mm-hmm. and to get to that potato pasture before anyone else does. Sanctuary. Yes. And I, I, I was, I was, um, I was not sure how the, the book was going to end, but I, I think the, the way it does end is, it's pretty good. It's, it's, it is, I think kind of a minor classic, this book. It's not, it didn't blow me away. Um, uh, like, that you know, Earth Abides did. Uh, that, and it might have been that Earth Abides is a lot longer. You mm-hmm. know, people in a disaster story, it might be that length does increase power. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's as powerful as Earth Abides. But I, I did think it was pretty interesting in it. There is a, a large subgenre of disaster stories, of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic stories. Mm-hmm. I, I would say this is an apocalyptic story. It's, it's happening. Right. There's not, not one specific event because the virus is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Jenny, did you have some questions 
about this. Oh, I I guess I was just curious why we picked this one. I I don't remember that discussion. Oh no. Um it's on the list. <laughs> you I know, but the list, who, Jenny? Who put it on the list? Um no, I mean it's it's on the 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 list. You don't remember of, volunteering? <laughs> it's on the list of massive uh, massively popular science fiction novels of the 20th century. There's oh, okay. a. I've got a list of. Uh, I've got actually a book here by David Pringle. Yes, uh, I have it too. I'm gonna work through it. Okay. We should uh, work through it. Well, I've actually got a different book than probably the one uh, I was talking to Scott about. Maybe the one you're thinking of. Oh, okay. Uh, there is a book called the Top 100 Science Fiction Novels edited by David Pringle and it's I think it actually has 101. Yeah, that's the one I have. Right. And this is on the list. And I've read a good number of the ones that are on the list and I agree that many of them are excellent books. Although there are a lot of titles I am not that familiar with, so um I, I can't say how excellent or the overall list is, but this is a this is a minor classic, I would say. Um and so it's on the list. <laughs> that's why, Jenny. But it's also in my uh, another book I have by David Pringle called The Ultimate Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, The Definitive Illustrated Guide. And it's, um, it's got uh, a prominent feature under the disaster section, along with The Purple Cloud by M.P. Scheel, which I've read a lot about and is even more racist, you'll be pleased to hear, Jenny, hmm. <laughs> than is... The Death of Grass. Although I don't, I don't think there's that much racism in this book. Well, I had it on one of my lists too. Um, you know, I really love reading short story anthologies, and one of my favorites is the Wastelands, or I think it's just called Wastelands. Yeah, the John Joseph Adams collection. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he does really well is after an anthology and an appendix, he'll mm. have future or further reading lists. And so I've actually been working my way through the lists at the end of that book. Um, and so I've read a lot of things I hadn't heard of before. It's so what are the things on there that you would be uh, thinking about reading next? I mean, the list is probably 70 books long. So you can uh, read that in a month. <laughs> I, I recently also finally read A Canicle for Leibowitz, too, and that was on the list. I mean, there, there are things that are pretty standard, like, you know, The Sheep Look Up and... Uh, Oryx and Crake, but then there's books that I had never heard of, like Brian Aldiss and... Uh, yeah, there's quite a few Brian Aldiss on the list. Of, I need to um, try Ridley Walker again, because I couldn't get through it the first time. But that, yeah, there's that, a, lo- a lot of great stuff on there. Um, I'm looking at the, the 100 best science fiction novels list. I'll send mm. you the link here. Or I'll send you the list. Yeah, I actually but, found a used copy of the book itself, so I could read the little blurbs. <laughs> um, and... I was going through it looking for audiobook versions, and it seems that a good chunk of them are available now. Just in the last couple of years, Audible has been sort of filling in the gaps of, of things that have never been audiobooked by anybody. Um, and I think in the same genre that that's on this list is a, uh, a Last Babylon by Pat Frank. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't read that. I don't know anything about Either. Pat. I've heard of it. And he's mainstream. Mm-hmm. Or she. He or she. It's a he. (laughs) And it's the same era. It's 1959. Um, So that might be interesting to look into. Death of Grass comes in as as number 21 on the list. I I don't know if this is like in order, but I would guess it is, considering that 1984 (laughs) is at the top. Yeah. 
Although Neuromancer's number 101. So. <laughs> well, you know, it's a point. But notice it is one it is on the list. Um, it might it might also be chronological in a certain way. Yeah, because I think that that list only goes through 1984, and that's when Neuromancer came out. So yeah, it's a good yeah. And so, someone else put out a sequel to that book too, and they did another hundred top. Uh, it's him. Year. It's the same author. Another. I thought someone else besides David Pringle had a second set of hundred books that were more recent. Yeah, I, I have like a review of it on Goodreads. I'll have a look at it. Yeah, we'll check. So of of the ones that are on this list, we've done quite a few as podcasts. Mm. Uh, we did Earth Abides. We did uh, The Demolished Man. I'm pretty sure we did The Demolished Man. I think you did uh, Stars oh, My Destination. Oh, yeah, we did the other one, The Stars My Destination. Uh-huh. We did The Space Merchants. Uh, Luke and I did The End of Eternity, which is uh, Isaac Asimov novel. Uh, we've now done The Death of Grass, I think. I don't know. Have we done one on A Case of Conscience? I've certainly written a review of it. A lot of the ones on here have been covered on SFF Audio is what I'm saying. But there's a lot still on this list that I think, oh, that that would be a good book to do. Yeah, so, we should make it a goal. <laughs> the entire 100. And Jenny likes to do lists. Yeah. Ooh, Stand on Zanzibar's there. I really liked that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that one too. Yeah, I should I read that. Hear good things about that. <laughs> Maybe we're picking our next one. Maybe. So, let's see what else is on this list. There's a book called Limbo by Bernard Wolf. Never heard of that one. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, it's funny because this isn't necessarily a post-apocalyptic or dystopian list. This is just science fiction, but a lot of them would fall into that category. Pringle, I think, is sort of pushed in, in the direction that direction. Yeah. Um, Maybe you know, it's era. Though, one of the, I think, should be higher on the list if it's a better, you know, better towards the top is um, The City and the Stars by Arthur C. Clarke. I think that is possibly the greatest science fiction novel. It is incredibly good. Very, um, very different and uh, very special. There's also a lot of Heinlein on this list, and uh, I like Heinlein, but I was thinking, really? Your Puppet Master's number four? I don't think it's that good. It's it's good, but it's not that good. I enjoyed that as a kid. I think these are chronological. It may be, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's for each year. Um, Rogue Moon... I don't think there's an audiobook of it, but I, I've been trying to read that book for years. I keep picking it up, and I said, oh, I'm going to read it. And then I said, oh, something else comes up by Aldous Budras. That's the only Aldous Budras on the list, as far as I'm aware. Also, uh, Dystopia on this list is Make Room, Make Room, the mm-hmm. one that turned into Soylent Green. I haven't read that, but Harry Harrison's a good writer. Flowers for Algernon's you know, number 51, but I'm much more of a fan of the short story version than the uh, novel. I don't think it needs to be expanded. Uh, somebody, was it Tam, you were talking about Bug Jack Barron? Oh yeah, I've always wanted to check that one out. That's number 62. And uh, Downward to Earth by Robert Silverberg. We actually have a copy of that uh, as an audiobook if anybody's interested. I've been trying to motivate myself to <laughs> to read it. Hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, inspired by uh, Heart of Darkness, and hmm. it's set on a, another planet, um, and uh, has a guy named Kurtz, or maybe it's a planet named Kurtz. <laughs> so it's like um, Apocalypse in the future, <laughs> instead of Apocalypse now, or something. I don't know, but I, I might, I'd, I'd be up for that. Anybody else? Uh, which one? <laughs> Crickets. Downward to Earth. <laughs> Are you going to read um, what it's based on, too? Uh, do a little comparative? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think uh, Heart of Darkness is pretty good. Um, but I'm kind of afraid to reread it. 
in the same sense, you know, when you reread something that you remember fondly, hmm. um, it might be it might be the case that it's not aged aged as well as I remember it. Uh, although I hear it, it's people think of it as a an always classic. Oh yeah, definitely. I've reread it in the past year. It was in a volume of short stories. It's nice and short. Yeah, I noticed that um, Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe is on here too. I'm um, I'm staying away from that because of uh, I've heard Luke talking about it on his podcast, and it seems like uh, it has exactly the thing I'm afraid of, which is pointlessness. Good <laughs> with pointlessness. Well, it's a very smart book, so. <laughs> I heard that's a lot of hidden meaning that it takes like two or three rereads to pick up all the clues. It does. I actually want to go back because I've only read it once and I haven't finished the four. I just read the first two. Yeah, Luke actually went through all four. Then he did a review of all four. Hmm. I'll have to listen to that. Or even no, this five. might be a Jenny book. I don't know if it's a Tam book, but I hear good things about it. Wild Seed. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, but it's on my Octavia Butler list. All right. Carble, well, Carble of a Sower. It's Wild Seed is the one on here. But you really like Parable of the Sower, right? Yes. That's solely dystopia. It is. It's it's my favorite post-apocalyptic dystopia novel out there, I think. Wow. Because it, instead of focusing on how people are killing each other for food, it focuses on what happens in a society where a woman becomes the driving force and she creates a new religion and people start following her. It's a really interesting story. And it's LeVar Burton's favorite, too. Yep. <laughs> but he's, he was on Sword and Laser uh, YouTube show, and he said that. Yeah. Okay. As if I could have loved him any more. <laughs> Reading did guys, Rainbow. Did you guys hear the... Yeah, I guess it was Tam you sent that Reading Rainbow as done by The Doors. <laughs> yeah, by Jimmy Fallon. That was really yeah, good. It's cute. Oh, Jenny, didn't you want to complain about the women in the book? No, did you? Uh, <laughs> No, I mean I'm, I'm. I apologize if we, if any women are offended. <laughs> I don't think you need by, to apologize by, by, by proxy. I, I don't think there was anything particularly egregious. There, was, I mean, just horrific things happen to women. Certainly, they do. They do. Well, and I there's I, some assumptions there, but I think that they're not wrong assumptions. They're just unpopular. Well, and I don't think that in this case he was writing what happened between the genders as like an idea of what he would want to happen. A lot of things that happen in this novel in general are kind of like, this is what happens when society breaks down. Women start having to walk 10 feet behind the men. (laughs) Yeah. They start getting introduced as property instead of as wives. And also, you know, the, the, the one girl whose parents are killed by Perry, uh, she turns to him when he says, I want her as my wife. She's, she, she, doesn't reject that utterly. Now you'd say, well, maybe she's being pressured in it. She's blah blah blah. Um, it might be that I don't understand <laughs> that well, but it might be arguable that that's not what's going on. That she is just accepting it. Um, it might be that she does see him as a protective force in a world. You know, you you get that mindset where you've got um, your captors are your friends because. If you don't allow yourself, if your mind doesn't allow you to ally yourself with them, then you will die. Yeah, maybe kind of smart. <laughs> smart in a in a horrible way. I was kind of thinking of that syndrome where you fall in love with your kidnapper. Yeah, Munchausen. No, Munchausen. Munchausen's when you think <laughs> you, you all your adventures that you think you're having are actually true. 
Oh well. <laughs> this this last weekend I went hiking through good. the mountains. No, no, the that's uh, Helsinki syndrome or whatever. Um, Patty Hearst. Yes, Pat, the Patty Hearst syndrome. <laughs> There's um, one little bit about the gender thing that made me laugh. Actually, it's from page 36 in my book, and it said, "That's our hope." Roger said, "The feminine stabilizer. She's leaving her home forever, but she puts the kettle away." <laughs> There's a, there, there are actually quite a few standalone lines like that. There's another yeah. one um, where he says 99% of the time women uh, act in the most sensible way possible. And they act that way instinctually. And then there's the other 1% where they act the other way just as instinctually. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, there, is, there is sort of a – it is sort of told from a man's perspective. But mm-hmm. – um, we do get a lot of the the wife trying to say, "I don't like this," <laughs> um, and I, I sort of sympathize with what's going on there because I, I don't really want to be hanging out with this crew of people. Yeah. Um, and in the movie, the way they do spooks, you know, um, it's compressed. So in in the in the book, spooks is is the friend of their son, and they're they're not there to pick up the friend of their son. They're just there to get their son and get out of there. But the fact that his father's in France and his, he has no mother and the, the, the school principal is about to run out on his job means that they're not going to possibly... They'll, they'll take him along, right? And he's going to be under the protection of uh, the other family, I guess, right? The, uh, the civil servant's family. Right. Um, the thing is, is there's tons of other kids at that school who are probably in the exact same situation. But you can't save everyone. If if you accept the premises of this book's argument, you can't. You you fall into its trap, and you say you can't save everyone. Therefore, who you save doesn't really matter on a moral level. It's all just pr- personal preference. And I think that is the key to understanding, like why at the end does was our does our main character choose to fight his brother? Rather and rather than to accept the uh, the offer to come in, and it's not a moral reason. Yeah, and Roger actually offers actually suggests that he do it. That it he just it, take his family and go. It it was originally his goal. He he would have got his goal, um, but why does he choose not to do it? It's not a moral choice at that point. It's like I prefer chocolate to vanilla. I prefer being the chieftain of these people and having that respect. Uh, I, I prefer keeping to the loyalty of this group than to the loyalty of that group. Um, then there's no more. There's no more moral equation going on, and that I think is a very interesting revelation that is not seen in sort of the more conventional. You know, like if you watch The Walking Dead. There's the good guys and the bad guys, and sometimes the bad guys are good, but most of the time they're they're bad and they're just hiding their badness, you know. Mm-hmm. In this case, it completely dispenses with the idea of good and bad. There's only um, efficient or inefficient or personal preference, and I find that very disturbing. And I think that's why it is sort of a minor classic. It's it's well written, but it's got this idea that I think is kind of interesting and. Uh, I'm not sure how to articulate it other than 
just how I did there. Well, and Roger says it back at the beginning too. Roger has some great like one-liners. He says, there's no such thing as public safety any longer. It's all private now. Mm. So is vengeance. Dun, dun, dun. He sort of disappears into the background as the story goes, right? He does, because he's not the one in control. Right. He he starts off as having a lot he of power. In line. Roger is married to Olivia, right? I, I think so. I forget. I can't remember. But I do know in the in the movie they change things a little bit. Um, uh, the owner of the gun store is killed, and his his son in law uh, kills him, and that's Perry, the son in law. Oh. Huh. And the girl is not taken from a house; she is the daughter of of um, our main character. Oh, yikes. Which is kind of a little bit more disturbing. In fact, there's a few things that actually improved in just the streamlining of the story. Uh, for example, Spooks is uh, his father's in South America, which is even farther away, right? France, oh, that's just over the ocean, right? It's just across the, the channel. But you, if if you're in South America, there's not much chance he's going to come back anytime soon, right? So uh, the pressure is, you know, sort of changed a little bit for the compression. It is a terrible movie, but I think mm-hmm. if somebody could take out the soundtrack and put the words back in the people's mouths um, <laughs> and cut out a lot of the flashing flashbacks and editing and oh, and the Vikings on motorcycles, I think it would be a good movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe Luke can re-edit it like he's doing with one of the Star Wars movies. It's pre- it, it'll be pretty hard because it is... It it looks exactly like 1970, and um, the the other thing that's kind of funny about it is it ends with a uh, uh, you know spoken coda, which is this is not a true story, but it could be. <laughs> um, and and I was thinking about like the message that it's trying to send, which is about pollution, um, and it it actually is a really good thing that we sort of got all a lot of the handle on pollution if if it's not you know some people think oh well we haven't got a handle on pollution what we've got a handle on is is pollution other than carbon dioxide we're really good at getting carbon uh you know, sulfur dioxide and other things out of the atmosphere but i think we we've got a lot of pollution licked but we haven't licked the the carbon dioxide problem yet so um i think that these movies probably actually had something to do with it you know in the 70s all these movies about environmental disaster help motivate people to think oh yeah about the future you know maybe we have to worry about this and in the movie they show tons of scenes of dead animals and you know pollution polluted rivers and it it is very propagandistic in a way so it It sounds like this starship uh, troopers movie i was Kind of got twisted around from uh, the original book. Starships Troopers, I think, is a very good movie because it's a it's a satire. Uh, it's a satire of the book. <laughs> the book is is not a satire, I don't think, but it is. I mean, the, the guys are wearing Nazi uniforms. Come on, <laughs> it's it, it is a very uh, yeah. It's kind of twisted to be a p- different political message than the original. Yes, absolutely. And Paul Verhoeven is is a, a master at that. I mean. You go back and watch the original uh, RoboCop, and you'll you'll see it's it is it still holds up incredibly well. I was I think I tweeted a couple months ago uh, about I said or maybe a month ago I said uh, here I thought uh, uh, the RoboCop was only a 
fiction novel or a fiction story, turns out uh, old Detroit is going to be uh, come new Detroit and uh, Omni Consumer Products is on its way back. It, it, is, it is incredibly... Wow. Uh, I mean, if you see the, the TV shows, they are all the TV shows that are on the on TV now. Like, including ones like, what was the one that's out this this month? It's called, uh, oh, it's called uh, Doomsday Preppers. Have you heard of this? <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, I can guess what it's about. Yeah, it's, it's about people who read this book and said, okay, I'm going to make that farm. <laughs> or um, <laughs> I watched one episode and it was about a family who live in, shipping containers in the middle of the desert and they're can they're canning three meals no five meals a day uh on top of the food they're making for themselves because they're expecting the earth's af- axis to shift or something and they're going to be in the north pole soon and so they're going to need to have lots of guns and and then the other people on the show were you know a guy who who's planning on living on on the food he can find in the LA river um and his <laughs> Survival preparations and carrying around a bottle of uh, salad dressing <laughs> because eating weeds is not super yummy. <laughs> but you put on enough salad dressing, it's okay. It's it's incredibly oh, it's incredibly sad, and it's almost like they're making fun of the people just by showing them. You know, you watch the people and you say, "You're not an actor," but it's like they're making fun of you, and yet. And yet, you you believe this stuff. So, is it making fun of people when you just show what they they're doing? <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of mean and sad. Some people might idolize them. My dad's just learning Chinese for the end of the world. That's good. Yeah. Know that song uh, about Werner von Braun? You know, he switched sides. Now he's working for us. Um, and then at the end, he sa- it says, and I'm learning Chinese <laughs> because the Chinese are going to take over after the Americans lose. I've never heard of that person. <laughs> you don't know who Werner von Braun is? Nope. Oh, my God. Jenny. Is that Evita or something? You don't know who. Te- oh, my God. <laughs> what are you, yesterday's? I'll just Google it later. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's like the father of the rocket in the United States. He put. What? He he made the Saturn V. Oh okay. Her person well, would be agreeing with me. She's probably horrified. <laughs> she's horrified, I'm sure. That's awful. You don't know who Von Braun is. He's a Nazi. Brought over in Operation Paperclip to booster the American rocketry program. And he was denazified and turned into a hero. They even made a Disney film about him. Huh. Called, yeah, called I Aim for the Stars. That's the name of the, the movie, also based on his his autobiography. Um, and, and somebody pointed out that it, he, he, he was the guy who invented the V1 and V2 rockets in World War II. Hmm. You guys know what that is. Hmm. Uh, yeah. the, and St. Gravity's Rainbow, right? Maybe. But the important part is... Um, his novel or his autobiography is called I Aim for the Stars. Uh, and someone pointed out at the time that it should be subtitled, but sometimes I hit London because by the time he becomes a, a popular figure in the United States, he's been completely denazified, right? Even though he was, he was in the SS, he's okay because he works for us. 
Anyways, I'm off. Okay, so I have a little personal anecdote. I just don't remember names. However, I used to live in this little town called Greencastle, Indiana, and they had a V2 in the main square, kind Mm -hmm. of like for display. So there you go. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Hmm. Hmm. All right, here we go.